You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 140, CSEC, A View from the Bench, Part 1. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, it is glad, I'm glad to be back with you. And I'm really glad today because uh, we have an expert guest with us who I know is going to really help broaden our perspective on CSEC. Well, I'm excited to have a friend, a colleague, and a champion in the battle against commercial sexual exploitation of children with us right here in our studio, the Honorable Douglas Hachimonji. He is a judge at Juvenile Justice here in Orange County, here in California. I always have to remember there's an Orange County in Florida, too. But um, he's... uh, very, very um, gifted judge has influenced me a great deal in understanding juvenile justice. He was appointed to the bench in 2003. When I met him, he was presiding juvenile justice, 2011 to 2014. He left us for a while and was um, assigned to Orange County Superior Court, but now he's back at juvenile justice. And I ask him to come today because I have received so many messages on Facebook. People have brought clippings from newspapers in to ask me, why did California legalize child prostitution? So Judge, welcome. And can you explain the confusion? Well, California did not legalized child prostitution. Um, Child prostitution is illegal in California. It is illegal to put a child on the street uh, and force him or her to have sex for money. It is illegal to buy a child off the street and have sex with him or her. What California did, similar to 35 other states, in the United States is to decriminalize, um, immunize children under the age of 18 for acts of prostitution themselves. So the child cannot be prosecuted, convicted for prostitution, but the pimp can be, the John can be. So that's the legal position. Why is there so much um, debate around SB 1322? You know, I think that people with good intentions, but with a um, different perspective of the situation, I think believe that prosecuting children for prostitution will achieve two goals. One stopping human trafficking, and number two, stopping children from being exploited 
stopping children from uh, themselves, putting themselves out on the street. I think it's a short-sighted view um, on both counts. Um, decriminalizing child prostitution um, in some respects will make prosecuting traffickers um, more effective. Recently, well, Minnesota did a study um, recently. They have a safe harbor law, a decriminalization law, um, which is considered one of the best in the country. And it went into effect in 2011. In 2000, um, before then, I think there were something like seven traffickers that were prosecuted, that were, um, uh, well, in 2010, 14 um, traffickers were prosecuted. 2013, after Minnesota uh, enacted its uh, safe harbor law, 63 traffickers wow. uh, were convicted for um, for putting children out on the street. So what it did was it, it actually made uh, the prosecution of traffickers more effective, not less. As far as stopping children from engaging in acts of prostitution, arresting them, um, incarcerating them, doesn't do anything to break the chains that bind them to their to their pimps. Uh, what it does is it validates what their pimps have been telling them that law enforcement and other people cannot be trusted. What it does is it increases and builds upon the trauma that they've already suffered in their lives. What it does is make them more, not less, resistant to receiving the services, the therapy, the counseling, the assistance that they actually need uh, to get out of what we call the life. So, so this law is a solution to that problem? No, it's not. Mm. Um, well, well, no, I, I misunderstood your question. Yes, um, SB uh, 1322, the California version of the Safe Harbor Law, is a step, frankly, I think a small step in the direction that we need. It slightly moves the needle to the right of center. Um, but it's not the solution. It's not a magic bullet by any stretch of the imagination. Um, getting children out of the life um, isn't solved simply by immunizing them from criminal prosecution. Getting children out of the life requires services, housing, counseling, mental and, phys mental and physical health services, education, job training. It requires significant dedication of resources over a long span of time to be able to meaningfully address the problem in getting children out of the life. Immunization from prosecution is not a magic bullet uh, that will solve human trafficking in this country or anywhere else for that matter, in, at least in my opinion. So when 
Um, when we look at this particular legislation, so we talked about this, that it moves us slightly to the right of zero. I have a quote from a previous conversation, slightly to the right of zero to take the justice system out of the additional victimization, the handcuffs and the cell. Um, the, the previous um, system, though, once you had them, then you were able to um, make them have some kind of services. What if they don't want any services? That was one of the arguments against um, passing SB 1322. Well, first off, we need to understand that these children have lived significant lives of trauma. Mm-hmm. loss of support, alienation, abuse, neglect, sexual abuse are all ingredients in these children's lives. By the time they get into the hands of a trafficker, um, their sense of reality is completely different than people who haven't been exposed to that situation. They listen and buy into the traffickers, the exploiters' notion of what is family, what is love, what is support. It's completely twisted. But that's their reality. When the police officer then encounters this child out on the street, arrests him or her, puts them in handcuffs, puts them in the back of the squad car, takes them to the juvenile hall, a jail by any other name, Mm -hmm. places them in a locked cell. You're perpetuating the trauma that their lives have already been about. You're trying then now some would say, well, now you can get them services while they're locked up in the hall. You know, that's a little bit trying to plant a garden in a sterile, dry field. You can throw the seeds on the ground, but they're not going to grow. The ground has to be ready. Um, the, per- the child has to be ready for those services to take hold, take root, um, and grow at least in my opinion. Yeah, I think I'm totally in the same um, in the same camp on that. So talk to me a little bit about um, the, the argument that I hear, especially when we're talking about 15, 16-year-old um, victims. I see them as a victim, but some members of my community say they're doing this with consent. Hmm. This is their choice. Mm-hmm. Children can't consent. Even if they say, I know what I'm doing? Children cannot consent. But what if they really argue and they prove to you that they are independent, they're not living at home, they're taking care of themselves? I mean, this is the argument that that people give me. But Well, for starters, um, in our society, for a long time now, children legally cannot consent. They can't consent to enter into contracts. Um, They can't uh, consent to um, 
Well, they can't consent to sex. What we, but beyond sort of the legalities of the situation, what we've learned recently in science is that the adolescent brain um, is underdeveloped. Well, oftentimes they will have the intellectual capacity to understand things. They don't have the emotional wherewithal, the impulse control to put into effect what they know. Every parent has had a situation where their kid has done something, taken the car uh, with a bunch of their friends or broken some rule in the household. And um, you look at your teenager and you say, don't you know that you're not supposed to take dad's car? And they say, uh-huh, yes. And you say to them, what were you thinking? <laughs> and what's the classic answer? I don't know. Right, right. What science tells us is they really don't know at that moment why they did what they did. Mm. So that a child's um, ability to consent is impaired as a, as a fact of their adolescent brain. Lastly, in, in our trafficking laws, we recognize this concept, this lack of consent concept, so that um, when we're talking about a child who is in the hands of a trafficker, that's all that we need to do to prove, make that human trafficking case. You don't have to show coercion or force on the child. It's a matter of fact, because they're under the age of 18, they're below that age of consent. So uh, I've noticed that you consistently use the term child or children. Um, you're not using terms like minor sex trafficking. Can you explain why that is such an intentional um, effort on your part? These are all, these are our children. Mm. And I think it's important to always remember that and see them that way. You know, there's a lot of words that are bandied about, but I think for, certainly for us parents, at least for me, the word child has a particular meaning. Uh, it resonates, at least with me. It suggests somebody who requires our care and our attention. It does suggest somebody who is immature, um, and I think it's a, for me, it's how I remind myself about the stakes in the game. Minors sounds like this legal concept that we're talking about. Youth sounds like something that happens out at the YMCA. A child is a particular, it has a particular meaning. Um, it suggests what is in fact true. It suggests a kind of vulnerability that we always need to keep in mind. Mm. I like that vulnerability. So when we're talking um, about the controversy about this, um, talk about the what happens to the pimps um, w before this passed and now that this has passed. Because some people feel <sighs> like taking their their, if you will, product away from them would put them out of business. And that's why we should 
um, arrest on juvenile prostitution charges. Well, um, that's probably true. I mean, if you could arrest a child off the street, um, you are taking the exploiter's product from him. This is an ends means sort of problem. Mm. We don't ordinarily use victims as tools to prosecute criminals. Sure, we might arrest a low-level drug dealer uh, in order to get him to um, snitch the wholesaler. Sure, we may arrest several members of a criminal street gang uh, to implicate the gangster that actually pulled the trigger on the gun. But we don't ordinarily use victims as tools to get criminals. A good example is in domestic violence. Oftentimes, domestic, in domestic violence cases, uh, convictions are not had. Cases are not, don't result in convictions because the victim recants, refuses to testify, changes their story. When the victim of domestic violence refuses to testify, we can't, we do not throw that victim in jail hmm. because of their refusal to testify. Because we understand that that domestic violence victim is a victim. When the, the, the domestic violence victim goes back to the home of his or her abuser again and again and again, we don't see the victim as enabling the abuser. We don't see the domestic violence victim as somehow complicit in the abuser's crime simply because they return back to the home because we understand, we've come to understand the cycle of domestic violence, the cycle of power and control that brings the victim back again and again and again to the abuser. And we don't prosecute the abuser. We don't, excuse me, we don't prosecute the victim. Um, we don't use the victim as a tool and f to force a conviction of the abuser. So that sounds like that's a major ethical issue to use a victim to, um, for the, so it's, it is an ends justifies the means kind of argument. For some, I suppose that that's true. Mm. The, the other thing that people said to me uh, is, well, that means then that uh, a pimp is more likely to use uh, a child, someone under the age of 18, girl or boy, um, because then it, that, that child is decriminalized and somehow they have this sense that they're less likely to be prosecuted. As I said at the outset, it's still illegal to pimp a child. The criminal liability 
that the trafficker faces is still the same. We have some pretty significant trafficking laws from the standpoint of penalty uh, in this state. Traffickers go to state prison for years for trafficking a child. That reality hasn't changed at all. The downside for the trafficker remains the same. It's his criminal liability for trafficking that will put him in prison. Similarly, as I said at the outset of this conversation, it's still illegal to buy a child for sex. And the John who will buy the child for sex still faces incarceration by that act. That hasn't changed at all. And the calculus for the John, the calculus for the pimp, do I want to do this? Do I want to face incarceration? Is the same calculus whether or not the child is or is not immune from prosecution. So what happens then when when you uh, prepare for prosecution and you don't, um, how can you make sure that you're going to have a victim that's going to be willing to testify? You know, our experience is that victims' children are much more likely to testify against their pimps um, when they have been provided services, when they have been provided support and understanding uh, and trust, rather than when, they're, when they themselves are facing criminal prosecution. Um, we've had children who have undergone days of cross-examination um, by the pimp's attorneys, um, not because they were looking to avoid their own prosecution, but simply because they had been provided support, services, assistance, trust, care, um, that gave them the that gave them the courage mm. to hang in there um, and face there him so then the the whole team that comes around that child uh, that happens not just within the the juvenile court system but it happens in the community so it gets really messy right yes I mean it can be um, in in our county in Orange County we're fortunate to have a human trafficking task force um, that brings together governmental and non-governmental uh, organizations in a coordinated, collaborative fashion uh, in order to provide sort of a holistic 360-degree uh, service program for the child. I, I think that's the only way that we can do it. We need to be able to collaborate together, work together, communicate together, find that common ground, whether it's the law enforcement officer, whether it's the prosecutor, whether it's the defense attorney for the child, the victim's advocate, the social workers, the probation officers, the juvenile court judge. We need to work together and collaborate together to, and find that common ground, and that common ground is that child. Um, I don't think there's really any de 
even in this current debate about safe harbor laws, um, as I said earlier, I think the people that are in, are on both sides of this argument are all wanting the same thing, which is to change the trajectory of the life of this child, bring the child into a happy, healthy uh, life. Um, how we get there, we will have our debates. But I think if we work together to toward that common goal, we'll find a way to get to a solution. And that is one of the things that I learned about you when I first met you, is that trajectory is is one of the most significant pieces of juvenile justice that distinguishes it from our criminal justice system. And I, I want to pursue that, and um, I think we're going to break this into a part one and a part two, actually. We decided that ahead of time. So we can spend more time on the positive side of this. Um, I, I want to describe for you, our listeners, um, a classroom situation with uh, the judge where I had a team from northern Iraq here, and he created uh, a presentation for, for folks from a country where they didn't have a juvenile justice system. And when he put the slide up, then these guys, I see them occasionally anyway. Um, you've met them. Dr. Sami was on a, a podcast here before. Um, this was one of the things they continued to talk about, that slide where one side of this road, this path is gray, and the other side is colorful and vibrant, and there's life. And we talked about this earlier, Judge, that this is a heartbreaking um, calling job. I don't want your job. Um, it, it's difficult. But when when they choose the path that goes towards the vibrant future, um, that's got to be really rewarding. And we're going to take a break here and come back for part two and talk about the, um, the rewarding side of this job. Sandy, uh, thanks so much for this great conversation. Uh, thank you as well, Doug. I'm really uh, excited to see what more we'll have to say in the second half here. And Sandy, I know that um, this topic in particular is likely to bring up questions from our listening community. And so uh, for those who do have questions, one of the best things you can do is to reach out to us uh, for more information on what we can do to help support you. And uh, the best way to do that is to reach us at gcwj.vanguard.edu. And that's a comes right to our address here at the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University. You can also reach us by phone 714-966-6360. So we will be back with part two in the next episode. Um, Sandy, we should also remind folks about the uh, Insure Justice Conference. Oh, you're right. Insure Justice is coming up March 3rd and 4th, and you can register right now and just go to insurejustice.com, and it'll take you right to registration. I really want to encourage other university students to join our Vanguard students, and we have a $20 rate for university students for two days. So you know some of our um, supporters are subsidizing that because we believe investing in the next generation is how we will end human trafficking. And we'll see you for part two in the next episode. Take care. Thank you.